Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Creative Live, the world's best online classroom for creative professionals, with classes on songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Slate Digital, making the finest quality software and hardware products, specializing in precise analog modeling of classic studio gear. The Joey Surges Forum Podcast is also brought to you by Focal Professional, designing, developing, and manufacturing high-fidelity labs speakers and drivers for over 30 years. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and Al Levy. So, uh, how you guys doing? What's, uh, what's new with you? <laughs> Who goes first? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pissed off today. <laughs> Why are you pissed? Uh, cause I have too much shit to do. And you know, like two or three days ago, I had nothing to do. And it was like, I, I'm like, cool. I'm kind of all caught up. And then all of a sudden, it was just an avalanche last night, and I came in this morning, and I'm like, oh, my God, if I have to print stems for one more fucking song, I'm going to kill myself. Let that hate flow through you. Come on. <laughs> Come on, let it flow. I just ate, so I'm in a positive mood, and I'm looking out the window where it's sunny outside instead of gloomy, so, you know, I'm slightly, I'm like 80% less pissed than I was 20 minutes ago. Yes, let that food settle, get into that nice little belly coma. <laughs> let the let the hatred the hatred and despair wash be gone like a wash though i gotta say that my feelings of hatred are fucking right at the surface right now i had had no good meal to chill me the fuck out i am pissed you want to know why i'm pissed this is nothing real this is the thing i i don't ever get pissed about anything real it's never like oh wow this job I have in front of me is so challenging, I'm going to get pissed or something like that. It's nothing like that. It's more like, why won't the alarm code work? Why will the alarm not stop fucking chiming every single time I want to open a window? And wait a second, my dog's collar broke and the maid canceled. She's coming tomorrow. And I have a podcast in two hours. And wait a second, there's a couch being delivered between the hours of when I'm podcasting and not. And the chain broke on the dog. And, oh, you hear that? And the, I forgot to turn off my text. So <laughs> it's like I that. didn't think it was possible for Al to get pissed. At least I've never heard him get pissed ever. So that's kind of exciting. It, Keep either. going. It's, it's, it's <laughs> now it's hilarious, but it's like that. It's the it's like that. It's never anything big. Yeah. Before we uh, before we started recording, I said, "Isn't that how it always works? Everything happens at the yes. same time." It's like, what the hell? Like, why am I being called a a billion times right right before I'm about to do the podcast. It's always when you're busy, too. Like, this week I have my assistant doing a bunch of, like, guitar effects pedals, and I kind of, like, gave him my studio for a certain amount of hours a day. So, I, you know, I'm trying to, like, not be in there and then just come in and play producer and not have any influence on the actual writing of it. And um, so, you know, a few times I've been in here, I've been in here on headphones and kind of just, like, with the speakers cranking behind me and... Uh, you know, it would be like this or that day um, when, you know, you're really busy and you got too much shit going on and I can't actually get in and mix anything or, you know, use my fucking speakers uh, that I'd have 4,000 requests for stems and this and that. And, uh, hey, make this revision and that. And by the way, uh, this manager's up our ass. We got to get this done. And oh, my God. So go figure. Everything all at once. That's just the only Avalanche way it can be. of shit. That's how it has to be. <laughs> my new life's philosophy is just kill everyone. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, uh, in more, in better news, I guess. Yeah, how are uh, you, Joey? 
<laughs> I just finished my whole creative live thing, which uh, actually went really well. I knew that shit was going to go well. Yeah, I know a lot of the dudes who give their uh, courses over there and love them all, especially friends of mine. But there's some of them who have no business teaching at all. They might be good producers, but... You know, that's that's where it begins and that's where it ends. It's like, get them to try to talk to a group of thousands about how they did what they did or how to get that good or how to pick up a skill. And it's like... Like that song. May as well just play that song. While hey, I wrote that song. You're going to be hearing from my lawyer for infringement. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, the thing is, is that they are smart because they use the audio program... To find, they try to find people who aren't instructors, but are you know really powerful creators, like people who are unique in how they do what they do, or unique with what they did, and not necessarily looking for the next college professor who doesn't have anything unique about him except for he has the ability to present. And I think that's something that's worth noting about Creative Live is that they find they try and find people who have something worth presenting over having someone who is a good presenter, which I would prefer any day. I'd rather watch some guy be really awkward on stage, but tell me something that is really interesting rather than have a sales pitch of a, of a course. You know what I mean? Well, I think it's got to be a fine line of every, every need gets met there. The, a, they need to be entertaining enough to be able to hold the attention of the audience for six or 12 hours B, their their material needs to be rock solid. Like, there can be no holes. And what happens when there are holes? A friend of ours learned this one the hard way is that their courses end up being 40 minutes too short every time and everybody hates them. So, A, they need to be great <laughs> speakers. B, they need to have great information. And C, all of that comes way before if they're actual professional educators or not. That part doesn't even really matter. As long as you're communicating the uh, the info to people and they're understanding it, well, that's what matters. And as a matter of fact, it's almost better that it's not someone who comes from traditional education, but someone who comes from the streets of life, yo. Because those will be those will often be the people in the audience checking things out. So it's good to it's good to have an audience to I guess instructor match like that. In my opinion. Yeah. Well, I guess if you're like in school and you're learning something and the teachers teaching it you're not quite understanding but then you ask another student and they put it to you in a different way and now all of a sudden you understand it it's kind of the same thing when you're talking about creative live it's like you know you're one of us but you just managed to do a lot more with it or got a lot further along with it and now we're looking to you to uh relate it to us yeah exactly it's like i know that me and you joey started in very similar ways which is we started with bullshit and and just made more <laughs> made music until music worked for us but you know that's a lot of the guys in the crowd come from that background they're not going to go to school or they haven't gone to school and i think it's really really encouraging for them to hear from guys who also didn't go to school who also started on home rigs that were just pieced together and who also had all those same challenges to see what those of us did to get out of that basement 
I think that means a lot. Hey, I went to school, but not for audio. And I'll tell you, after going to school for a business degree, I didn't learn shit about business getting a business degree. It was kind of like a waste of four and a half years. I mean, the chicks and the alcohol was fun, but other than that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you wrote a book. So tell us a little bit about that, your experience with dealing with that, like the you know, just the back end of, of having, being oh, an author. Okay. <laughs> that was a random question. <laughs> yeah, dude, just tell us about it. Motherfucker. <laughs> many, many years ago, I used to run a very large instructional guitar site on the internet called insaneguitar.com. And this was back before YouTube absolutely decimated the entire guitar structure instruction world. And it was everyone all video based, but back in the day, I'm talking like 99, 98, there was shit for guitar lessons online. So I was sitting there in my college dorm as a freshman and I was really into shred guitar and I practiced more hours than should be admitted publicly because, you know, things like nerds come out. Uh, So, um, (laughs) you're a guitar nerd. Yeah. I, 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 that's all I eat, breathe, chat was just guitar and speed picking and sweeping and all that stuff. So I put a couple of like lick master classes, like here's how you sweep pick and broke it down and deconstructed it. And all of a sudden it just exploded over a period of like two years. And it went from like, you know, hey, 30 people checked out my site this week to holy shit, like 5,000 come every week and now 10,000. And so it built into this pretty big thing. And I'm one of those guys that I always like to answer my emails, no matter how I'm busy I am eventually, not saying right after somebody sends it, but hey, dude, how do I sweep pick, blah, blah, blah. So I used to get all these hundreds of questions every week from all these kids. And I got tired of answering the same fucking 20 questions. So I was like, all right, I was sitting there Christmas day. I don't remember what year. Don't ask. Cause it was probably like 2004 or five or something ridiculously a long time ago. But, and basically I just had the idea. A kid asked me Christmas morning, how to freaking sweet pick. And I'm like, fuck this. I'm going to write a book because I might as well just write everything down. I know about guitar playing, guitar technique, guitar practicing and all the nerdy stuff and, you know, throwing some different twists and, you know, some branding things. So I started writing a book and I spent two and a half years just doing it kind of at my shitty office job while I was supposed to be working. And, um, I put it up and put it on my site and sold a bunch of them and, you know, it's still out there. (laughs) So, yeah, well tell us, you know, there's challenges though with like, you can create the content, you can put it out there and, and get it published and, all this, but then you've got to back up everything that you said in that book. So like, I guess that's got to be somewhat challenging because you have the, um, the hurdle of, of trying to educate, you know, some people think this way, some other people think that way. And I'm sure that it was a challenge to have to deal with, uh, you know, people who want to say, you don't know what the hell yeah, you're talking about. Yeah, there was a few of those, but... How did you get past the shit talkers with your book? I didn't really get a ton of it. I don't know. It was weird. I don't know how, because, I mean, I could show you a litany of hate mail I used to get just from trying to be an instrumental shred guitar player and being under the age of 40 and not in some famous band. You can imagine how that pisses older dudes off who aren't quite as good at guitar. <laughs> so <laughs> you get... Uh, you get a lot of haters, you know, I mean, it's, this is the internet and this is especially 10 years ago, the internet where people actually used to write you 40 paragraph emails about how much of a piece of shit that you are and how much you suck at your chosen instrument. And they've never even met you or talked to you or, you know, but they, for whatever reason, you piss them off that much just by having a song on the internet or something like that. <laughs> so I had a, a, hopefully a decent reputation as an instructor from my website. So a lot of the people that I think ended up buying the book were mostly like fans. I mean, I, did, I went and approached a bunch of publishers and they're like, oh, this is really great. But, you know, we got like 
Troy Satina on our staff and he's the number one guitar selling author in the world. So he could just write this book instead. And I'm like, okay, well then <laughs> fuck off and write it. And he still hasn't. So, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> this is really great, but no, thank you. Yeah. So it's just, I mean, it is what it is. I, it was something worth doing. I have another book that I'm actually working on, but I'm not going to tell you guys about what, <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's something I like to pick at here and there and I, something I like doing, but it's definitely something I never thought I would do. I never really thought I was going to be an author or write a book or try to publish a book or anything like that. That whole concept was crazy. But like anything, you have an idea and you just say, I'm going to do this and then you do it. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's just like, for example, Joey called me one day. He's like, dude, we always talk about audio. You want to just start hitting the record button and make a podcast. And I'm really like, yeah, dude, let's do it. No. I love stumbling into things, and I think a lot of people that get into this industry stumble into it. I don't know if there's a ton of people who, you know, actually go to college and then like become an intern and then become a big producer. I know there's people out there that do that, but I don't think it's the majority. I think a lot of really good ideas are like uh, along the lines of that seems like a really good idea. I'm going to try to make it happen and then somehow get really serious about making it happen because it seems like a really great idea. I guess once some test feedback comes back and you know you're not totally fucking up and, <laughs> and you know you know it's a good idea, but I think that there's a, a lot to this game that's very, very improvisational, I guess, to say the least. But uh, we can say hi to our guest, Mr. Josh Newell, because he did go to school, didn't you? Yeah, I went to school and I interned at a big studio and did the whole old school method. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, yeah, absolutely. Josh. Uh, thanks. Pleasure to have you. Yeah, we are glad that you're here. Thanks for uh, Thanks for having me on. Yeah, for sure. Well, tell us a little bit about how you did get into this and like, what is your story for people who aren't sure who you are or what you've done? Kind of give us a background. Um, okay, I'll try to keep it relatively short. Uh, I'm from Tennessee originally, and uh, I was kind of always the guy in my bands that ended up recording practice and all that stuff. So uh, once I discovered you could kind of make a living at it, and I'd always kind of planned on going to Standard College anyway, one of the local universities in uh, outside Nashville has a really good recording program. So I went and did a whole bachelor's program, which is, I guess, kind of weird going to recording school and having to take biology. Wait, hold up. Hold up. I have a question. <laughs> so you were making a living. How early were you making a living at it or making money at it? Um, I probably, I wasn't making a living at it or making money at it until my early 20s because uh, just in college, like I didn't have the resources to really kind of do anything outside. I mean, I had my four track. I'm, I don't know how much older I am than you guys, but I had my four track. Pro Tools wasn't really a, a thing yet. So, I mean, I, I played on sessions for other people at school and stuff like that and would do other bands demos, but I wasn't really making, you know, this wasn't my profession 100% until post-college. So I did four years of that, moved to LA, started interning with a, a hip hop guy, started interning at studios and finally got on full-time in early 2002 as a, as a runner uh, at the studio. It used to be called Enterprise, then I ended up at a place called NRG. And basically, I caught the tail end of the music industry crash uh, Napster situation. So I got to be there for when the guys had $700 a day just to spend on food to when, you know, just nobody was booking LA and studios were closing left and right. Wow. That's like the exact opposite of how I think most of us came into the game. So that's really cool to hear your story and... and hear how it's different than ours. Um, I definitely don't think I would suggest it as a business model at this point. I think there are, <laughs> there are, uh, there are upsides to doing it that way, and there are downsides. I mean, upsides, you, you 
you get to see those records where, you know, they're rolling in $30,000 microphones and stuff. And it's it's definitely cool still. I, I still get to work on projects with those kind of budgets from time to time. But it's, I don't know, it feels, it feels kind of like an archaic system at this point. It's definitely, I don't think it's the way to do things. I know from knowing you that not just did you work up the ladder the traditional way, but even the way that Linkin Park and you, do you mind talking about that whole relationship, how that developed? Because I think that's interesting for people to learn. Yeah, I'd love to hear that story. That's so old school, perfect story-like, exactly like what you would believe in any internship. Well, any internship hopeful kid believes that this is going to be their story. Like, this is the story of their success. Uh <laughs> Yeah, and I kind of wish more studio runners that I dealt with remembered. I, I guess it, it's really that approach, like people remembering you. I told the story before, uh, I think on the Create Live, but what happened was the studio I worked at is where uh, Linkin Park did the bulk of their records, um, and they're NRG, right? Yeah, yeah, and they're kind of one of my they're kind of one of my bigger clients. But I, I started there right before they started their second record. So that was back when, you know, you're doing food runs and stuff like that. And they just kept coming back. And I ended up assisting on one of their albums. And uh, one day they just kind of glanced over and, and they asked, well, do you know how to chop drums? And I said, well, yeah, I know how to chop drums. And they're like, all right, well, you know, take a backup drive and can you edit the drums on this song? And I did. Did the drums, brought them back. They're like, oh, this sounds great. And then, uh, you know, we're working on something else. And they, they kind of, hey, can you tune vocals? Said, yeah, I can tune vocals. Gave me, you know, backup drive, went and edited those, brought them back in. Like, oh, yeah, this is great. And I kind of ended up turning into the Pro Tools editor on that record. And uh, one day one of the guys told me, uh, I don't remember how the conversation started, but uh, he said, you know, when we were when we used to work here, you were the runner that didn't mess up our food orders. Like, I always remember you never messed up the food orders. We would try to get you to do the food orders. He's like, so when you said you knew how to chop drums, I assumed you knew how to chop drums because, you know, you were always the guy we could rely on to not you fuck up our sandwiches. That's an amazing piece of advice, Josh. I think that's yeah, that's so true. I mean, I can, I know we can all relate to that very deeply. Yeah, well, if you're given the the stage to you know when answer a question like that, make sure you have the right answer. I guess yeah, because <laughs> you never know what that question you know you never know what that might evolve into. So uh, that's a really that's a really cool story. Um, and I, I think it, it still kind of works if we if we're on a session and I have a runner that I'm asking for stuff and he's reliable. You know, if the assistant gets sick, we'll pull that runner. That runner gets asked to do things. Like, you do a good job, it gets remembered. But like I said, I don't know how many people are really going to come up through the major studio system anymore where that even applies. But No, but it still applies. It still applies. It applies in the small studio system. Because even now, let me give you modern-day scenario. Okay, producer who does a ton of records, one of the it guys, guys of the moment, does more work than he can handle... So he's got X amount of dudes who he likes to hire for editing. Say all those guys are busy at X time, or one of them is sick. So then he's going to ask around and see if there's anybody else that a buddy of his trusts, or if there's another guy that he's been meaning to give a chance to. He's going to find somebody else who's going to get a chance. And that chance right there could be the chance to forge a relationship and make a really great impression, or it could be a chance to just be another alternate that won't ever rise up, at least in the eyes of this producer. So that that type of thing still happens. It's just different. It's a different scenario, but 
I think same lesson applies. That scenario is actually how anyone that works for me gets a job. I usually find somebody through a friend or, or through somebody else, uh, like an acquaintance or something like that. I give them a shot. And if they do good with that shot, then they move on to the next phase, which is, you know, getting a bigger shot. It's, you know, something more important. And then eventually, you know, I, I the current guy I have right now, he went through a year worth of stuff, gave him little jobs, odd jobs and little tasks for a whole year. And now he's, you know, my full-time engineer. So absolutely. I mean, you know, when you get an opportunity like that, don't, <laughs> I guess not, don't drop the ball. <laughs> and another good point is that established producers are always looking for people to help them because finding really committed, dedicated, true, talented people that are actually going to be team players and you're going to want to work with and that are actually going to bring value to you as a producer are very hard to find. And once you find those guys, you kind of put them in your head like that kid's really talented. I don't know where I need him, but at some point you may need him. So you kind of check that back in the back of your brain. And then one day when the opportunity comes up, you're like, hey, dude, can you blah, blah, blah. And then if the answer is yes and they kill it, you're like, you're hired and that's it. Do you have uh, people that you work with, Josh, or people that you like under you that you hire to do stuff for you? Um, most of my work still consists of uh, Pro Tools editing and engineering. So I don't, I don't do a whole lot of production, unfortunately, but I do have my set call list of people. And then the other thing is I have a couple friends who are in very similar situations where, uh, actually I just, I had a gig last week with, with two guys where I was a referral just because my friend had a doctor's appointment and just couldn't do the session that day. So the referral thing, I, I guess... But I mean, what you guys are saying is exactly it. Like, I know people I can call when I can't work, or I know people when I'm working on something, get a little overwhelmed, or just need to uh, part out some work that are kind of on the go-to list. So yeah, so what you guys are saying, like knowing somebody that's reliable that won't drop the ball when you pass it to them, uh, is definitely a big thing. And I think a huge chunk of my work comes from referrals. Like, so being reliable in that regard is really good for your career. That's awesome. Are you the uh, guy that Lincoln Park? takes with them everywhere or something like that. Cause I, I was at NRG and I was asking sort of the, I think he was like the main engineer, at least for the time period that I was there. And, uh, I was like, Oh, well, Lincoln park comes in here. Do you actually work with Lincoln park when they come in here? And he was like, no, they bring their own guy. Yeah. At the point with NRG, they, uh, I kind of transitioned into just engineering for them, uh, as they finished a record. And then when they came back to do the next record, I actually wasn't available. I was with another producer. So they brought in outside help. But, uh, if they go to studio now, there's, there's kind of two of us, this friend of mine, uh, Ethan mates, who's been with them for 10 to 12 years now. He's kind of the, the main engineer slash co-producer on what they're doing. And then I'm the additional engineer slash Pro Tools editor. So it really turns, because they'll book, with all the guys in the band having everything, they'll book two or three studios at once sometimes. So just different people are in different places. So oh, okay. I'm not the only primary guy, but I am one of the guys that they call when they do that. Just because they have multiple, with six guys in a band, multiple studios going, they have to have multiple people. Yeah, well, that's a badass circle to be in, so. Quite an operation. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's an undertaking. Can you tell <laughs> us at all about how you guys kept that organized? Yeah, fortunately, the guys in the band are are somewhat Pro Tools savvy in the regards, there's a whole lot of save as going on. 
um, because you can be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there, <laughs> there's a lot of, I mean, everybody's pretty good about sending emails. Like, this is what we're working on at this studio today. And with kind of a note, like, I worked on this. Because with a band like that, they actually write in the studio. So someone might say, hey, we did drums on this today. And then the next day, we're doing bass on it at another studio. Um, so it's a lot of save as, you know, 1.1 and then the initials of who worked on it. So if I tune something, say Chester Bennington sings on version 3.2, it'll say, you know, song 3.2 CB for Chester Bennington. And then if I have to tune it the next day, song 3.3 JN, which means I went through and edited and tuned what needed to be tuned. But then, you know, running multiple drives, we just kind of have a sync program and it's really a lot of note keeping. There's just notebooks galore at the end of the, the sessions which I realize is kind of old school, but sometimes it's handy just to be able to throw a notebook around instead of having to dig out somebody's laptop. Oh, yeah. Well, I always prefer to do things in a way that will withstand the tests of time. So if you're using some kind of weird organization system or something like that, what happens when that company goes bankrupt and then the servers come down and you don't have any of your data anymore? (laughs) Yeah. Like it's hard to rely on a cloud for stuff like that, as well as even with email, like you never know what's going to happen. So... I don't know. I, pr- I prefer to, to just have hardcore notes somewhere. There are actually, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 two to three inch binders at this point in storage with, this is how we got this guitar tone. And it's a picture of the pedal and the, the chain and the microphone placement. And, you know, this is the preamp setting and all that stuff. That's amazing. That's so smart. Yeah. I mean, th- if you're thinking about organization, I feel like that's something Joey and I kind of talk about a lot because we all have a lot of different individual things going on. It's not just us producing. We've got the podcast, we've got a drum company, et cetera. And having to manage a whole team of people in every single one of those aspects, you know, for example, as a producer, I've got like five or six other guys that work for me. I got, I got a guy that tracks drums. I got a guy that orchestrates and does additional production. I got editors and it's keeping track of all of those systems and making systems to self-reinforce those systems to make them easier is can be quite the challenge. That was something I was experiencing this morning that we were kind of talking to at the beginning of the podcast, just getting organizing and organizational hell and how important it is. Well, I just became a cell phone user recently, which is surprising in its own right. But <laughs> the, one, the one feature uh, with the cell phone is you can press a button and you can say, remind me to do this in four hours or in, you know, on February 15th, um, remind me to blah, blah, blah. And then you can literally forget about that. Like you don't have to store all this crap in your head. And I, I'm late to the game with that, but that's been literally like a revelation for me. It's changed my life. (laughs) (laughs) I got to get that iPhone is what you're saying, huh? (laughs) Yeah, you need to, man. Have you ever checked out the software Evernote? Uh, I haven't. Okay. Well, I'm still learning it, but, uh, I know you guys just went on, on a very, very intelligent and artfully articulated tangent about how, Keeping stuff off the web is a great way to keep your files safe. I agree with that 100%. But if you're not going to, I'm discovering that Evernote is a really, really great project manager. I'm just now starting to get the hang of how to use it. But uh, people use it for managing multiple projects with multiple people, with multiple this, multiple that. And uh, its, its tagline is, we can organize anything. So, uh, oh, yeah. uh, check out Evernote. It's pretty cool. Well, I currently use uh, Google Documents pretty heavily. And in, in fact, 
I trust Google enough to know that they're probably not ever going to die. Absolutely. So I kind of keep all my stuff on there because I'm like, okay, well, worst case scenario, they're going to figure out something to where all their users can get all their stuff back if they need I it. I got into Google Docs <laughs> about four or five months ago, and that was a major revelation for me in my own business and just terms of organization and making a couple of spreadsheets. Now we can track how much, you know, all the mixes, what rate we're mixing at, what songs, what the progress is, who's doing this, who's doing that, if I paid my assistant, et cetera. And having that document there where it's on the cloud and I can just access it anywhere. Like, hold on, did I, Joe, did I pay you for this? Did I pay you for that? And I could just literally click it there, open. We have a color system and everything and it just click, click. And it's the best thing ever to have. You know, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of Google Drive. I'll I'll wear their little banner on my forehead till the death. The only reason I looked into, <laughs> looked into Evernote was because it does something that I haven't found any of the Google Drive apps to do. And believe me, I spent about two hours looking. But uh, yeah, I think Google Drive is the best thing ever. But Josh, I want to ask you something, if you're, if you're allowed to ask, tell us about this. But uh, Andy Wallace, right? Yeah. Right? Okay, so uh, um. Andy Wallace. <laughs> Andy fucking Wallace. <laughs> yeah, dude, Andy fucking yeah, Wallace. That's the correct way to say that. <laughs> Let's talk about them real quick, if you don't mind. Nothing, you know, nothing that'll get you in trouble. I can't think there'd be anything that would get me in trouble. Okay. Um, Andy Wallace. So what do you, what do you want to know? Just Andy Everything. Wallace, dude. <laughs> Andy Wallace. <laughs> All right, wait, let's, because people listening to this might not know. So what's the, the story? What's the connection? If they uh, don't know who Andy Wallace is, oof. Okay, but yeah, sorry. yeah. Pause the podcast and go see who Andy Wallace is. If you don't know who Andy Wallace is. Um <laughs> Did you work with them? Uh, I, the last Linkin Park record he mixed, so he they flew him in from New York to mix while we finished tracking in the other room. Uh, oh wow! Okay. Which I mean, Andy Wallace is one of those guys. I think I, I mean everybody geeks out on him to agree. Um, I mean, Jay Rustin was calling me like, "What's what's it like working with Andy Wallace?" And uh, I was like, "I was like, I kind of want him to be my granddad." Uh, <laughs> That's awesome because he looks like your grand. He's an you know, old guy with a beard. Yeah, he's and got that he's Sean not Con- Connery a- thing going on. You know, he's like the Rock. Dude, I'd work with Sean Connery too. I would let Sean Connery mix my album, and then I'd have Andy Wallace. <laughs> then I'd have Andy Wallace remix it. <laughs> I mean, you know. Just every record I could think of growing up that we listened to, uh, and Ethan, who I mentioned before, the other engineer, he was he was geeking out as well. And, you know, the, the guy's just done everything, you know, from Slayer to, to Guns N' Roses to Nirvana and all that stuff. And he was just the nicest of guys and would just hang out in the lounge and chit-chat about vintage cars, his dog, whatever you wanted to know about, hey, like, what was it like doing Slayer records back in the day? So what was it like doing Slayer records back in the day? Uh, apparently, working on Seasons in the Abyss or in you know all those records was actually a pretty good time. Um, but just talking about how they came up with production elements, like all right, well we need with what Slayer's doing, like we have to figure out a way to make this all cut through. Well, what if we do the drums super dry and don't use a lot of room mics and fake reverb? And just I mean, talking to the guy that's figuring all of that stuff out. You know, he mixed Run DMC's Raising Hell. He did Jeff Buckley, I and mean, he's. Uh, but the, the, the cool thing with working with him was, uh, he kind of works on whatever is available, uh, equipment wise. He came in like, okay, I think he asked them to rent an SSL compressor. 
uh, or the Allen Smart compressor, uh, instead of using the the one built into the 9K, I think is what we were mixing on. And that was it. One song, he used a distressor on a vocal, but everything else was in the board. I mean, aside from reverbs and delays. But just, yeah, I need these pair of speakers and this one piece of outboard gear, and I'll just do everything on the board. That's amazing. That's awesome. And I really thought it was going to be a case of like, all right, when he leaves at the end of the day, I'm going to go in and figure out what he's doing. And I, to this day, I still have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> like just looking over the board at the EQs and the compression settings, and there was nothing there that was like, aha, that's a trick I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up. The guy just has amazing ears and... What a surprise. Comes down to the ears. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, right. What's that T word, talent? Once again... Uh, yeah, talent, skill, and ears. Yeah, there was just there was just nothing there. Not that he's not doing anything. That I just there wasn't a way to really glean information. And I, unfortunately, it wasn't a situation where I could sit in the room with him while he mixed because we were still tracking. But uh, I mean, it's I got to work on a project with Andy Wallace. So check that off the bucket list. Did he have a lot of automation? Yeah, that was the one thing. Is he will he looped sections of the song for half an hour to an hour at the time and just did a ton of micro rides. So when you watch the mix play back at the end, the faders, just all the faders twitched pretty much throughout the entire mix. That's awesome. So yeah, like that's kind of the same thing I always preach about. Like Chris Lordalgie is kind of the same way. It's all about the rides and the automation. That's what really makes the mix move and like makes it exciting. I think there's a lot of people who want to know like, well, what kind of gear are you using or how are you, you know, are, how are you hooking it up? Are you running two 1176s into each other? It's like, none of that really matters. I mean, sure, you can get some interesting sounds doing stuff like that, but bottom line, what makes those dudes so powerful is the choices that they make and their ears are what's you know, driving let me, those uh, decisions. Let me just throw yeah. in for our less educated listeners that by the rides, they mean automation moves, aka volume, not ride symbols <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> it's all about that ride symbol out. man because I, I could see someone listening to this and being like oh it's all about the rides blasting blasting their easy drummer ride right <laughs> And he does it the real way, right? He sits there on the console and moves his finger instead of sitting there with a fucking pencil tool and just having at it for a couple hours on the in Pro Tools. Oh, well, he probably doesn't have a computer <laughs> anywhere. Well, he, he did have his usual mix assistant come in. Uh, do you guys know who Josh Wilbur yeah. is? Hell yeah. He was Andy's guy for a long time, but Andy's guy now is this guy Paul Suarez, I think is his last name. But Paul sets the session up and then you know out lays it out on the board and then the the pro tools rig sits over in the corner with the screen facing paul in case andy needs anything changed but i mean andy runs the session from the controller on an ssl like he hits play there never looks at the screen pro tools works like a tape machine with that's him. sick josh wilbur has gotten one of my favorite modern metal sounding mixes maybe of all time on the latest gojira especially the drum mix but it just goes to show, to me, Josh Wilbur is one of those guys like Jay Rustin or something who's just God. He just, he's just <laughs> God, man. He just, like his mixes are coming through like from a higher place. But it just goes to show that Josh Wilbur is Andy Wallace's assistant. Makes sense. Not surprised. <laughs> well, was, but yeah, I, I can imagine working for that. I think he worked with him for five plus years, so... I'm very envious of Josh in that regard. <laughs> so what's some other uh, interesting either mixers or producers that you've worked with? Anything that sticks out in your mind as like kind of shocking to 
you know, people who are in this whole audio life, uh, things that might be interesting for them to hear. Or clients, too. Yeah, clients as well, because I know you've worked with quite a laundry list of clients. Uh, I mean, one that'll surprise the metal guys, I, I worked on the last Alvaro Levine record, which was produced by Chad uh, uh, Kruger from Nickelback. And I, I'm I, a lot of metal dudes are gonna be bummed on this, but Chad was really super nice, like a really, like a really cool guy. I felt really bad about how I'd felt about Nickelback up until that. We're point. gonna let you in on a little secret. Joey and I both love Nickelback, but don't tell anybody. All right, all right. Yeah, if you look at my iPod, I, I mean, I'm willing to admit it because I just it's what I like. I don't give a shit what people think about what I like. On my iPod, if, if you scroll through the artists, you're gonna see almost like one album or so from every artist. But from Nickelback, I literally have every album possible, including all the single you, releases. You will never hear me <laughs> say a bad word about Nickelback. I'm not allowed to play it, but somewhere I have a rough mix of they were gonna get a guest rapper on a song, so Chad did the kind of interim rap part. Oh no! Uh, so, so somewhere I have a recording of the guy from Nickelback rapping. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> Kind of in the style of Eminem, and he was actually really, really good oh, at come it. Oh, come on, dude. Nobody's going to hear this podcast. <laughs> and, and very, very sad. Uh, there was a, uh, right. Um, it's on a drive somewhere. But, uh, you know, and he came in. He's like, how was it? And I was like, that was really, really good. And if you had told me, you know, five years ago that I'd be recording the guy from Nickelback rapping on an Avril Lavigne song, I, I wouldn't have believed you. <laughs> and he must be a blast in the studio because he seems like a he's a really intelligent guy because if you follow his career... He's written tons of songs for people that people don't even realize it. And he's, from what I understand, he's pretty savvy in the studio. Like he absorbed all the information that he learned from Mutt Lang and all the different producers that they've worked with over the years, right? Yeah, he was very, very meticulous and he's very aware of what he's doing. I'm honestly kind of surprised that they go with outside producers, but it may just be a case of I could see we're in a band at that level having an outside producer would be the way to go just to get decisions made in a, say, a disagreement about a part, etc. Yeah, you want to have that backup plan. Yeah. The word to the wise, though, because we have talked to uh, some of our listeners, like uh, when we do this thing called Mixed Grit Monday, where we critique their mixes, they send it in, we trash it. But uh, one of the things that keeps coming up is that we get guys who have produced and engineered and mixed their own band songs or whatever, Number one advice I give them always, 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 always is have somebody else mix your stuff. Go to a real producer. You don't have enough of a bird's eye view on your own music to make the right decisions. And you're just proving my point again. Even at the highest levels of the music industry, a.k.a. Nickelback, he has outside producers. Yeah. In regards to people I've worked with now that we've all confessed our secret love for Nickelback, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I guess one of the upsides for working at a big studio over the years, kind of a big budget place, is you do get to work with a lot of guys that are kind of, you know, people that you've heard about. Like I've I've gotten to hand off mixes to Chris Lord Algae and Manny Mariquin and Neil Avron, and I've gotten to work with guys like uh, Joe Ciccarelli and Ross Hogarth, Rick Rubin. Yeah. I worked with John Bryan. I don't know if you guys are familiar with John Bryan. That, that's really an experience. Uh, that guy's ears are should be in the Smithsonian. They're just incredible. Did you say James the Bond? Way? Wow. Or John Bryan. <laughs> so, no, John Bryan. Yeah. <laughs> um, John Bryan came in to mix a Dido record, and the NRG runs on these large Dynaudios, 
And he came in and he sat down, he was playing a few things and, and he asked, he said, you know, are these different tweeters than what was in here when I did Fiona Apple, which I think at that point was maybe seven, eight years ago. And uh, I, I said, well, I'm sure they've been you know, reconed or retweeted. And he's like, oh no, I don't mean that. Is it a different model tweeter? Because it sounds, I forget how he described it, but it sounds different at 16, 12 to 16K like this. I said, okay, hold on. I went and got the studio tech, asked him, and he said, yeah, actually, it is a different model tweeter. I have a pair of the old ones. We could solder in real quick. Went and got the, the tweeters. We swapped them out. And it, just being able to do the quick AB like that, it was the exact difference he had described. But he could remember that seven years after the fact that, oh, at 16K, these new ones are a little brighter. Yes, that's amazing. Which was. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember around what year that was? That this yeah. happened? Uh, maybe 2008-ish. I'm not, I don't, I, it's been a while. 2008-ish, and she, okay, guessing that he did the record that she fell off the map afterwards from, um. Uh, I'm trying to remember, no way, the, the Dido. I'm going somewhere with this, by the way. Uh, quite possibly. I, I know the record didn't end up doing all that well. I'm not sure where you're going, so I don't want to cut off your story. I have my theories about why it didn't go so well, but... Oh, well, I was just going to show, throw out a little a little story about Fiona Apple that, uh... When I was... <laughs> oh, no, the, the, the Fiona Apple record he did was the one, Win the Pawn, and it's the super long title. So I'm not sure what year that would have been done, but we were doing a Dido record at the time that he asked about the tweeters, so... I was confused on which one you I'm were discussing. Put, okay, so Fiona Apple got big, as in really big, in the mid-90s, right? And she had her little spiel, her little meltdown, and then disappeared for a while. And then she had a, a comeback. And I, I don't know what happened with that. I'm just, try, I'm just trying to figure out if he did the comeback record or if he did the one, the one that... Uh, What's his name again? One. John Bryan, B-R-I-O-N. Um, he did, because Criminal was her big song in the 90s, but that wasn't the record he did. He did the next one, and then, yeah, she disappeared, but her comeback record, he started on it, and then it got finished by, uh, oh, I'm blanking on his name, the, 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 the guy that was Dr. Dre's bass player forever. Uh, he did a Mastodon record, Mike... Can't think of his name. That was supposed to be the big comeback well, record. I had a an interesting night the night that I got to see her live. I went to the Grammys that year. It was like the year of her breakdown, and she was a performer. And uh, I was like special guest of like some big shot lawyer guy, and so got to do the whole the whole thing, and I got to see her live and was like, oh my god, what a voice! Holy shit! And he leans over to me and he's like, just watch. In about six months' time, you're not going to remember who this bitch was. I was like, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Makes me wonder sometimes. I mean, I, I'm all for create your own future. And, you know, I'm a very conspiracy-free kind of guy. But when a lawyer of that size leans over and is like, her days are numbered, watch. And then he chuckles about it. And then literally six months later, she's off the deep end and gone. It's very, very interesting to me. That's all. That's my tangent. Just keeping things real. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> um, you know what, Mike? Mike Elizondo was the producer I was trying to think okay. of. Um, yeah, she... I, I, I kind of feel like Fiona Apple is in one of those cases where even if she dropped off the map, she'd be okay with it. She seemed... She came by the studio while we were working because she and John Bryan are still friends. 
and she seems very kind of introverted. Mm-hmm. But I also I also think her success in the '90s gave her enough money to kind of do whatever she wants. So good for her. So I think that's she kind of she kind of does that. Like she has her. I don't think she's ever going to shoot for having a, a massive commercial success again anyway. So her so. FU to the industry was a heartfelt FU to the industry. Yeah. Great. I mean, even to some degree, I think as soon as she got some control of her, her music was never, you know, never seemed like major label pop market machine. So I think part of her success, and you could almost say it about, I think she falls in that category of female artists with Tori Amos and Ani DeFranco, where they just kind of get to do their thing and they have their fan base and they're they're happy doing that. So let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question because a lot of people in the metal community seem to think that the pop world is easier to, musically. Ha. Like, yeah, ha, no, ha. but I'm serious. Ha, ha, ha. A lot, a lot of people <laughs> in the metal world, and, and in the production metal world, not not the big guys, of course, but a lot of people coming in seem to think that pop is easy stuff. Just like you know, you just get some guy to write a song for somebody else, and you know, spit it through a few, you know, presets that make the auto tune sound get the bitch to do a few dances and you're good. And that's all it takes to pop. And I think that pop are the Navy SEALs of production. Well, I want to piggyback that question because I think this will be a good example. Uh, the new Avril Lavigne record, I listened to it. And so you you did some of the work on that, right, Josh? Uh, yeah, I think over the course of a year and a half on it, uh, I, I was one of a number of engineers that came through. But yeah, yeah, I worked on that record. Okay, boom, right there. First off, year and a half of work going into one album. All right, that's right there, mind-blowing for the metal community because most metal albums are made in 30 days. Well, wait, wait, um, wait. Let me ask you something. So, How many songs were working on before they all got cut down? Uh, I remember at one point there was, uh, let me think, because we kind of caught, I kind of came in, I think, the better part of a year into the project. And at that point, by the time we were done on the session, I was on... We had enough material for an album, and they even sent a lot of it to Chris Lord Algae, and they they had mixed a lot of it. They had people from the label come in, and it was kind of I, I got sent from the, the the producer who hired me a just out of curiosity. Like, I, I kind of how is that going? He's like, oh, I think we have the album. He sent me twelve songs, mixed, mastered, uh, that basically were supposed to be the album, and then the album didn't come out for another six to nine months, and half of the album had changed at that so, point. So uh, down from there, were there ever like 30 or 40? I don't know if it ever got that high, but I would say there's at least 25. Well, you got to count for submissions too, though, because sometimes on a pop artist, the writer camps all bid in, and they'll send out a thing or across all the managers that manage those guys, and they'll be like, hey, you know, we need a song for fill in the blank, and then everybody submits three or four songs, and then you have a huge pool base, and then they actually start picking the songs that they're going to pick from. There's that dynamic, too. Yeah, but Avril and uh, and Chad wrote almost all the songs on the album. Yeah, it was the two of them and this guy, David Hodges, who's the uh, the guy, the producer that hired me. Uh, David does a lot of pop stuff, uh, a lot of female pop stuff. But they wrote most of it, but then they ended up bringing in this guy, Martin Bennett, who is in that uh, band Boys Like Girls. He ended up doing a lot of songs. Once they got past that initial 12 that they were going to put on the album, then they, I think they ended up writing another half dozen with him. But even working on to the degree of like the number of songs that you can have on a record and have it not happen or working on a record and it and not come out. My first big Linkin Park record, we spent two and a half years on off and on. And that and that turned into 50, 60 songs. And then the next record they came out with, I think half of the songs on that album had been from the prior album sessions. 
So some of that, that big commercial stuff, you've got to remember, it's, uh, I think it was first brought to my attention when I saw that Metallica documentary when, what was it, Sun Coming at Monster? Wasn't that the? Yeah. Metallica or Linkin Park or Avril Lavigne or something like that, that's not just a band. That's a multi-million dollar industry. Yeah, it's like a whole corporation almost. I mean, it's just a ton of people that are working for that name. Yeah, the reason I say that, just because Joey's saying, look, a year and a half spent on those songs, and to take that a step further or to just say, look, it's as opposed to, say, the local band who has the same eight songs for five years, like, these guys are, yes, they're working forever, on their collection of songs. But they're getting whittled down from like 30 songs with multiple submissions and multiple teams and really working it down to the very, very best. And even then, when you got 12 that were supposedly ready to go, even then, six of them changed. Yeah, or you do 12 more just to see what else can we do with this. I think the thing with that was they they just kind of said, we don't hear a first single. So it kind of, yeah, these are great, but there's no first single. Oh, I Um, hate that line when they say that (laughs) (laughs) no that's great though because that's a good point because that's when you're talking about millions and millions of dollars and you know hundreds maybe even thousands of people relying on this doing well like it fucking matters you remember sean's (laughs) band yeah okay this is maybe 2008 i had a local band that i had developed and produced that kind of had gotten picked up by universal motown and they went out into writer land and they wrote like 60 songs and they and they had some incredible songs and they never came out with the record well uh, the label eventually folded and closed its uh, shop and dropped everybody with their debt but basically they just we never we don't have the lead off single yet we don't have the lead off single yet keep writing keep writing and i mean they wrote with everybody you know from howard benson to matt squire and you know they just they went around the country and that's all the guy did for two years was just write songs and it, it just they, they weren't ready to throw the house behind it yet bummer yeah that's a frustrating situation because i actually have heard a lot of stuff that sean's written and it's really good um they're called uh the royals right the royals yeah well they were called mechanical kids but then they rebranded and changed a few members and now they're the royal and they're still yeah if you're listening and you want to check them out uh, look up the royals on youtube ever heard of a band called daughters of mara yeah josh wilbur mixed that <laughs> going full circle yeah daughters of mara that was a band that got signed to who? Atlantic? That that sounds right. Or somebody around the year 2007, 2007? Some, something like that. In that range. Uh, the drummer, by the way, is fucking unbelievable. Dave. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, he's gone on to play with the Mars Volta, to play with Miley Cyrus... I've gotten the pleasure of jamming with him once. He's in that band with uh, with Max Cavalera and the dude from Macedon and a guy from... Uh, oh, Killer Be Killed. Yeah, Killer Be Killed. Now, okay, their story. They, and apparently the other dudes in the band are also awesome, but they got signed to the major deal. The whole nine got the big production, Josh Wilbur, uh, and Garth, right, I believe. Um... And they got shelved, shelved for like two years. Something bad enough to where the band then broke up and the singer is a poor dude like who was afraid of the music industry living in Arizona by himself. 
and some of them have odd jobs in the Orlando area, <laughs> except for Dave, the drummer, who has gone on to become, you know, a force in the industry as far as session drummers go. So, you know, shit happens, man. It really does. The major pop machine, it's weird because they'll still put that kind of effort into to pop artists. I don't think they do it as much with rock bands anymore, at least in my experience. I worked for a number of years. Well, David Hodges, the guy from my Avril Lavigne story, he was one of the original members of Evanescence. And I worked with Evanescence's guitarist for, uh, I still work with him off and on, but I was exclusively his guy for about two years. And he was telling me when they first got signed, the band got signed, they moved them to LA and they put them up in an apartment and made them write songs for a year plus just because they didn't hear anything. But the label was just funding that. Like, oh, you guys are great, but nothing you're doing is that great. So just write and write and write. And I'm not, I, I, maybe that still happens. I mean, your story with, you know, the guy having to go write with Matt Squire, but it's doing rock records or metal records. I don't think pops easier. I think it's way more difficult. And I think that's kind of the big point of the whole, this whole segment. It's like, yeah, you listen to a pop song and you're like, okay, the they repeat the same line like 40 times and the song has four chords. But to get to that point took a shitload of time and energy and money and years spent engineering it and trying multiple. I mean, is this something that you go through? Like, are you uh, recording the top line like many, many, many times before they pick one? Yeah, when we did Avril stuff, and this is part of me realizing that Chad was maybe way more talented than people were giving him credit for, was we were doing multiple, multiple passes of vocals, and he would he would down to, I like the A in that word. I like the way she inflected this and make a note of this take. So it was just notepad after notepad of takes. It's weird, though. Some pop artists, you'll, you'll get that. You'll get 30 takes until they hear it. Other pop artists, and this is kind of what's a little frustrating at times, uh, there's so much else going on with them having a perfume line launch and this appearance and that appearance <laughs> that you're spending all day working on their track. They come in for an hour and then they're like, all right, we'll just make the vocal out of that and make the double and make the harmonies. And you're kind of, I, I, I've had sessions where you have to build words like, wow, she never said that again. And you want it doubled. Okay. <laughs> but they, you know, they, they had to go to their, their whatever perfume launch or, you know, movie premiere. So it's, Pop's an interesting thing. When you're working on a pop production and you're listening to the transition from a verse to a chorus, if you're working with a rock band or a metal band, it's a lot of, well, maybe the kick pattern should change here or we'll overdub a guitar. You kind of have your set elements you're working in. With pop, you'll go, well, we're losing some energy here, so let's figure out where the energy is. Okay, well, the energy feels like we have this tambourine going here and then there's nothing in the pre-chorus, so maybe we need a hi-hat. And you just start going through... Any, or maybe a beeping sound. Like We just need something in this weird frequency range. So pop production is, is strange in that regard that possibilities are so broad that it takes a while to figure out what that thing is going to be. Damn. And you're also always searching for kind of that gimmick. Like I, what's the Taylor, the, uh, Taylor Swift's We're Never Getting Back Together where there's that bit in the bridge where she's, it sounds like a recording of her talking to her girlfriend in her room, but it's kind of a crappy recording. I, I, re I remember yeah. that song coming out and working with a pop producer at the time and him, him just going, this is genius. Like, why did I not think of this? So there's always that pressure in a pop production <laughs> to come up with that, you know, shares auto-tune believe voice. Like there's always got to be that That's something. That's ultra relevant to the kids yeah. of today. Yeah, like you need that thing. Yeah, I think it'll be eye-opening for people listening to this to 
to kind of hear these stories because I don't think there's enough people out there that really think about music production with an uh, open enough mind in terms of like, you know, if you're if you're a metal guy, you play metal guitar. And so the only thing that you think about is like, man, how do I make the kicks? Like, how do I make the kicks sound better? And it's all you think about for your whole life. <laughs> <laughs> but then you, but there's all these other things. It's like, okay, well, we have the best kick sounds ever. We have 60 of them. And we also have 60 songs using the best kick sounds ever. And we still don't have a great song it's like there's there's a whole world of stuff that I, I like to just open eyes with this podcast. And I'm glad that you could come over on here and, uh, you know, kind of enlighten us with some of these Josh, stories. Josh, do you know anybody that works on any Maroon 5 records? Well, I met I met Mike Shipley right before he passed away. He had done some, uh, but I, I did do some sessions with Matt Wallace when uh, way back when I was an assistant at NRG. And I th- want to say one of his engineers that came in was the guy that engineered the Songs about Jane, wasn't that the first album? Yeah. 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 So I've met some guys that worked on that, but I, I don't know anyone that's currently working on Maroon 5. I was going to say, anyone who wants to get good at transitions should check out Maroon 5, Songs about Jane, and then the two records after that. Because, I mean, after that, they became a pop band. But before that, they were a rock band with pop elements, and their their transitions are so brilliantly done. Everyone is so well thought out. There's... Ideas for miles for metal people. I feel like that band is a case study in just branding and successfully redefining the image and sound of a band while staying, you know, ha- still having its sound and being able to re, like, just make something out of, I don't know. I, yeah, oh, they rebooted. It, it, it just yeah. did an amazing job at it. It's just incredible watching their career. You know what else that band is a testament to? That band is a testament to the old style of developing bands working because they were a bunch of dudes in a van who you know were kind of their their first record bombed uh and they toured for a couple years with label support in a van making 100 bucks a night just like everybody else does it but for some reason their major label didn't drop them which is unbelievable that's unheard of but uh so so by the time that record that we that we all know got huge. Well, the band had already been out for ages. That's not like that song. Uh, what's it called? Not this love. This love is Pantera. But uh, what's that song called? No, they have a song called this. Love. It's, this yeah, love. their song's this love. Okay, yeah, this love isn't the product of a brand new band. That's a band who had been in the trenches for years and who just never got dropped because their label actually believed in artist development, which is a dead thing. But imagine if they had come out the gate not too strong, kind of, you know, not the best numbers, and got dropped. Boom. What an amazing loss of talent and money for the industry. From what I understood, too, that Songs About Jane record, I mean, it was the the case of what you said, they hadn't hit. But I want to say, because it it came up when I was working with Matt, I want to say the total budget on that record was $80,000. They did it all in his kind of private production room where he could just overdub. So the fact that it hit the way it did was kind of a big surprise. But I think, and I'm really hoping I get these, I'm pretty sure it was that record that I was talking about 
uh, with this guy, but he said the whole thing was done and it just didn't feel right. So they went back and recut all the drums in kind of an R&B style. And that was the the light bulb moment. Like basically they had this pop record done and like, hey, now this is all pretty good, but there's no lead thing. And they went back and retreated all the drums and I think some of the bass. And then it just became this huge monster. That's so So sick. it's one of those, the label's like, uh, here's a little bit, try to give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever worked on anything that went through Mutt Lang hands? Uh, no, unfortunately. That would definitely be awesome. But I, the closest I got, I was, I was working with a band that Mike Shipley was going to kind of come in and, and take care of. But then that was unfortunately right before he passed away. So that's a wow. That- would have been amazing. Yeah, well, Mike Shipley, if anyone, you know, is listening to this and doesn't know who he is, uh, I think he was kind of the right-hand man for Muttling uh, for mixing, right? Pretty yeah, much. Yeah, he was Mutt's engineer. He's kind of the guy that figured out the Def Leppard sound and, you know, those huge... Uh, from what I understand, a lot of that was Mike Shipley. Yeah, so he he's in, responsible for a lot of shit. Yeah, like over, I think, 200 million records sold, if I remember reading correctly. I think I was looking at his discography like a year or two ago. You know, if you look on Gear Sluts, he, he was a pretty active poster there, and I think his name was like Ship Shape or something like that. You could search, and uh, he drops a lot of good gems. I remember doing that one day and just kind of like printing out and archiving his posts and reading them every day and studying, so... There is some good info out there from Mike Shipley that he was able to provide to the community before he kind of passed. So that and that Absolutely. brings me to one last question I have for you, just because uh, it's it's really really interesting to me. Lots of guys are good at one thing; they're one trick ponies. We all know one trick ponies, but uh, there's a lot of guys that people don't know enough about that are you know that are just badass engineer producers who get to work with all different kinds of music and so you know we've been talking about Linkin Park and Avril Lavigne and stuff Uh, but I'd like to know you know how you approach a band like Cynic or a band like Intronaut which is radically different than those bands Cynic, uh, I, I really just got hired straight on as an engineer. I was at work one day and my phone rang and I didn't know the number and I picked it up anyway. And it was Paul Masvidal going, hi, uh, this is Paul Masvidal from Cynic. I hope you don't mind. I got your number from Intronaut. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that, <laughs> we, we want to record drums with you, which was, which was awesome. And then going in with those guys, I know you guys have, have worked with Sean uh, before. Yeah, yeah, I've recorded Sean and I've been in a solo project with him. He's godly but he came in and he he just kind of I, I asked you know what's the approach you want to do and he said i want to approach this like a jazz record and i don't want a super snappy kick drum and i have two hi-hats and three rides and whatever else and they didn't record to a click and he, he just really he wanted it to sound more like a jazz kit so it was a completely different approach to drum recording than what you would normally do for a metal band and they came in, did three songs in a day, and he he sat and listened and like, all right, well, the song speeds up here and it slows down here, but I feel that's that's the way it's supposed to work. So it, it's, I think it is one of the upsides of, of working in a place, working at a big studio and coming through the big studio system is you do work with a lot of different people and a lot of different approaches. So it, it puts you in a little better place. Well, and maybe not puts you in a better place, but you get to see so many different approaches to recording. Uh, so many different people do things differently, and then it really comes down to the project you're working on. You know, if you're doing drums on with Questlove on a Dido song with John Bryan, it's a completely different thing than when you have um, a drummer like Dave Ellich from uh, come in and do metal drums. Like, it's different mic choice, different mic placement. 
Uh, and then that's the thing with Intronaut that it's been a perpetual experiment with them in coming up with this natural kind of sound that still works as a, as a modern metal thing. And I guess, well, I, I don't know. They're trying to keep it secret, but I've been emailing their singer today about going in to record their next record. And we're talking about doing the entire thing live in the studio in three days, three or four days. Um, you know, they just did that cloud kicker recording where they did the whole thing live in a day. So the plan is to shoot for live tracking everything in maybe three or four days with a couple punch-ins overdubs. And then that's how they're going to do the record, which is a you know very drastically different approach from the way most metal bands do records. If anyone could do it, though, it would be them and you. <laughs> well, more so them. They're great players, but uh, also this would be our fourth or fifth record together, so we kind of have a, a working pattern at this point. I've always wanted to do a record like that, and I've tried to talk a couple bands uh, into it. But you know, there's just it just takes a certain type of uh, performer and uh, musician to be able to actually pull that off. Uh, well, not just a musician, but like a, a multiple musicians that also have chemistry. Yeah, and we we talked about doing this with them for a while, and I think doing the cloud kicker thing is what's making it really more realistic for them. But they don't even with their records, the drums aren't chopped. You know, if we do a whole take and one snare hits late in the feel, we'll nudge that. But I think the fact that they do their records like that also is going to make it more possible than. Yeah, there are those bands that just need that machine-like precision where you're going to have to do multiple takes and edit. And then there, there are bands every now and then where you can just do a whole live off-the-floor thing. Yeah, but so. don't, let me, don't let me let anyone get confused. Danny Walker, the drummer from Internaut, is a machine. He's fucking great. The very, actually, the very first time I recorded him, it was for this uh, uh, Sid Barrett tribute album. And Danny came in, and he's like, well, I have a gig to play with, because he's in, like, nine bands. He's like, I have another gig tonight, so we're just going to knock out drums and do everything else. And it took us longer to set up and mic everything than it did to record. Yes. Because the first, his first pass was perfect. Yes. And he was like, you know what, I just want, I want to do a different Tom fill here, and we just ran it down a second time, and he was done and left. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Love that shit. Well, you you have the pleasure of working with a lot of people who can who can pull those kind of things off. And I think that is kind of also eye-opening to the this audience because I think we, a lot of times we're working with people who can write stuff that they can't play and it becomes quite a challenge to figure out how to actually record that and make it sound good. And uh, all the time we're saying, you know, these productions, these mixes, the reason why they're great is because we make sure that everything that we're recording and everything that's going into the project is absolutely awesome and not, you know, accepting anything subpar. But when you're dealing with someone who doesn't really have anything subpar, uh, it's kind of hard to worry about that. <laughs> yeah. The unfortunate, I guess, byproduct for a while. And I think this is what didn't help with the, when the whole Napster thing and kind of the music industry uh, shut down in the, the mid 2000s was Pro Tools got to a point where people were like, oh, we can fix anything and we can sign bands based on their looks. So there are, as often as I get to work with session guys, because if you get a good session player, your life is just easier. You have Josh Freese come in and play drums. It sounds perfect. Like everything, everything's great. There's no, there's no off hit. There's no weak hit. It sounds like a machine and that's great. But there are also, and I, and I wouldn't name names, <laughs> but there are young bands that will come in to do a record for the first time and they don't, you guys would know what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I'm just saying, there's being, there's, you can be a, a good live band, but then you get in the studio and you find out it's a completely different animal. What's a click track? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't want to play to a click because that's going to ruin the feel. And it just, uh, you know, you still get stuck doing, and a, and a lot of my work is still Pro Tools editing, you still get stuck in situations where you are building, you know, building parts and moving every single hit, you know, 
All right, kicks and snares are on. Jesus, that hi hat's terrible. And moving that around and tons of and tons and tons of editing yeah. where it's. I like the building the word example. I've had to do that a couple times uh, uh, for different reasons. I've had to do it because I needed something, but I've also had to do it like as an order. Like I had a band, one of their songs became uh, chosen for like a wrestling something. I don't know, like a wrestling event or I don't know what the hell. And the word fake was in the song and the wrestling guys were like, yeah, we can't have the word fake in any songs. <laughs> so I had to change the word fake to make. And, uh, I had to find like an M somewhere and then like the A from the fake. And it, it was interesting. I once but. mixed a record where the entire quad tracked performance of the entire album was put together one note at a time every performance of the guitar. Like they literally sat there, chopped every note of every riff, one note at a time and put it together. And I hit play and I looked at it cause they didn't consolidate the edits when they sent it to me. And I was oh, like, no. holy shit. <laughs> Are you talking about the, one of the yeah, albums I did? I'm not going to say what band, but <laughs> this is back in the day, back in the day. Yeah. In my experimental <laughs> period, I was like, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to record every guitar part one note at a time Dude, and see what happens. You know what that album really I'm talking fun. about? This is way back when, and I oh yeah, it sounds hilarious. Even the tremolo picking parts, which you know, if you're tremolo picking a string, you're basically striking the string like 32 times in a bar, every single one punched <laughs> in separately. <laughs> it was pretty fucking awesome to listen to because you hit play and you're like, wow, MIDI run through like amps and stuff you know it's kind of like it was like as if the midi guitar performance actually sounded yeah, it good was, <laughs> it was it was an interesting one it was like wow i thought i was meticulous but holy shit that's ridiculous joey how long did that take you uh it was pretty <laughs> stressful man it took a long time because jesus yeah because we got to the point where we basically ended up using almost all of the recording time just on <laughs> guitars and then went when we got to the end of the the record we're like holy shit we still got five songs to record vocals on and you guys are only here for literally 48 more hours so we stayed up for like 30 hours straight just recording vocals i don't know how the hell we did that but <laughs> that was crazy <laughs> I'm glad that my life doesn't consist of projects uh, like that anymore. <laughs> I, I have a buddy that did editing on uh, one of the Divine Heresy records. Oh, dude. I know. I just did a project with Travis. Um, Travis. Yeah, oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, he did the last DH record. He was the vocalist. This, I think it was Divine Heresy. Yeah, it must have been. But he said they actually had a DI. That My friend was interning with Logan at the time. So I think this would have been the first one. But uh, uh, Tommy Vax. He said yeah, actually, on vocals. Yeah, he uh, he said they actually had to set up a DI on Dino's guitar, not because they wanted to reamp and not really even for editing purposes, but it was so fast and there was so much speed picking like that that they needed to count. They had to be able to actually see on the DI where the pick was hitting the string to make sure that he was hitting all the notes because it was so fast. Like, well, that sounds right. And then you go back and count like, oh, no, you missed one. There are only seven pick hits. <laughs> and, there, <laughs> and there need to be eight. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, Excellent. Sounds about right. That's an awesome story, but it sounds like a terrible time editing. Yeah. Yeah, but you got to do what you got to do to get the song to where it needs to be. So I always preach that, too. It's like 
I mean, even if it seems ridiculous, like if, if somebody sings better upside down, then fucking figure out how to hang them upside down and just <laughs> do it. <laughs> I worked with a singer once that was, he always said he felt uncomfortable in the studio. So we, we let him handhold the mic and then built a fake uh, monitor wedge out of some cinder blocks for him to stand on like he was on stage. And then all of a sudden his vocals were great. I'm just like, all right, I yeah. guess that's how we'll do it. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I mean, that that's the kind of shit that makes good records. And I know... There's a lot of producers out there um, that that's kind of like what they actually specialize in. They're not the tweakers and the the dudes who know everything about compressors. It's the guys who know, like, if I throw this fucking chair at you, like, you're going to do the right <laughs> thing. So it, Yeah, I think that was, I mean, from what I understand, like, Ross Robinson's one of those guys. I don't listen to Ross Robinson yep. records because I love the sound, but the productions he gets are just... He gets a lot of hate, too, because if, like, I just read a recent interview he gave... And he spends like half the interview talking about spitting on stuff. He's like, yeah, I, I just spit on stuff in my house. And they're like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, people come to my house and I have like this really expensive house and I, I'm i like this really rich guy and I'm working with this poor band and they think that I'm so far above them. So in order for me to get down to their level, I just spit <laughs> on stuff. <laughs> And I'm like, man, I can't even imagine what someone's thinking when they read this article because they probably don't understand what the hell is even going on. Like, Spit on the band's eggs for breakfast. Why is this guy spitting on stuff? You guys sounded like shit yesterday. Why not just do it at a studio? Why not just rent a place? Well, because he he says... Because that's what he wants. He believes in... He says he believes in doing the, the records in his house because it's more comfortable and it doesn't create this big stigma around the the whole studio experience for the younger bands that haven't been in a studio before. Spend all your time spitting on stuff, and then when they leave, have a hazmat crew come through. So that's this, <laughs> the, the main lesson. Spit on everything, and that's the key to success. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for coming on the show and, and spitting into a mic with us. Uh, I think we really appreciate it, Josh. You can spit it. You can spit in my yeah. face anytime. I'm gonna dude. fly out to visit you just to spit in your face and fly it's back. Fine. To Please film it and send it to us. <laughs> you can spit in my dog too. My, my plane ticket. Spit in my dog too if you want, or my girlfriend. I don't care. I'll bring some of my dog spit and throw it on Perfect. your dog. <laughs> it works for me. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you for having me okay. on. I appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for coming on, man. Sweet. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Creative Live, the world's best online classroom for creative professionals with classes on songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. Go to creativelive.com slash audio to start learning now. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Slate Digital, making the finest quality software and hardware products, specializing in precise analog modeling of classic studio gear. Go to www.slatedigital.com to revolutionize your mix. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Focal Professional. Designing, developing, and manufacturing high-fidelity loudspeakers and drivers for over 30 years. Go to focalprofessional.com to find out more. To ask us questions, suggest topics, and interact, visit urmacademy.com and subscribe today.